So if you have a Bible with you today, open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, and this morning we're planning to look at verses 9 through 11. John chapter 15, the title of the message this morning is Abiding, the Joy of Abiding, the Joy of Abiding. We've been looking a little bit at verses, uh, verses 1 through 8 about what it means to abide in the vine and how he abides in us, and so this morning we're going to kind of wrap up this portion of Scripture in verses 9 through 11, the Joy of Abiding. Let me read it to you. The Apostle John writes this. He says, as the Father, he's speaking for Jesus here. This is Jesus speaking. John's writing it. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn this morning more about what it means to abide in the vine. And this morning, I pray that you would specifically highlight for us through this text the joy of abiding. Open our ears today, open our hearts so that we could see your word and see Christ and that we would be transformed more and more into his image. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, how many of you have ever heard that uh, Bible verse somewhere in the Bible that says, the joy of the Lord is your strength? You've heard that? How many of you guys have even maybe sang that song growing up when you were a kid? The joy of the Lord is my strength. You can know the song, right? I won't sing it anymore because I don't want to uh, put to shame what Caleb just did for us over here. But uh, you know the song, right? You know the verse. Now, who knows where that verse is found in the Bible? Well, there we go. Nehemiah 8.10. You don't have to turn there, but there's a story in the Bible of Nehemiah. Let me explain to you the context of where we find that verse in the Bible. Nehemiah is a fantastic book in the Old Testament. It's all about how the Israelites returned from Babylon back to the promised land. You see, Israel had sinned against God, and they were disciplined by a loving father who had taken his people to Babylon for 70 years. And toward the end of that time, a man by the name of Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, was placed in this interesting position where he was actually able to petition King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, for him to be able to return to Jerusalem. The king let him go, gave him special provisions and protection along his way, and after returning to his homeland, Nehemiah challenges his countrymen to arise and rebuild the shattered walls of Jerusalem. And in spite of the opposition without, and in spite of some attacks even from within, this task was miraculously completed in just 52 days. By contrast, the task of reviving and reforming the hearts of God's people would take a lot longer than 52 days. And so some of his contemporaries were Zerubbabel, who helped rebuild the temple a little bit earlier, Ezra, one of the prophets who was going to remind the Jews about God's word, and he used Nehemiah to rebuild this wall around Jerusalem. Now in Nehemiah 8, where we find that verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength, it's Ezra that's actually reading from the book of the law of Moses from early in the morning till about midday. 
So if you count up those hours, it seems to me that he was reading for about six hours. And he's just reading the Word of God. And as he's reading the Word of God, the law of Moses, parts of the Torah, the people were convicted. And they began to weep. And they began to both raise their hands up to heaven, but also to bow on their faces before a holy God. And the Bible says there in Nehemiah 8, they began to mourn. And they were weeping as they were convicted in their hearts of all the ways they had sinned against God. Maybe realizing for the first time that they deserved God's discipline and they deserved God's wrath. But now they're back. They're back in the promised land. They're getting reoriented about what it means to really worship a holy God. And it's in that very context that we read Nehemiah 8.10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's what he's saying. A holy day dedicated to the Lord should include the reading of the Word of God. A holy day dedicated to the Lord ought to include the explanation and the preaching of the Word of God. A holy day dedicated to the Lord should include deep conviction to the heart where God's people mourn over their sin. But a holy day dedicated to the Lord also includes this part where he says, I want you to go your way, get up from your place of mourning, he's saying, eat fat and drink sweet wine and share, send portions to everybody because that's also part of a holy day. You see, a holy day has grieving, but a holy day also points to the gladness we have in God. And what Ezra is saying, and Nehemiah records it here, is that a day that honors the Lord includes both repenting and rejoicing. And if you want the joy of the Lord to be your strength, it's not just some surly, sappy Christian song. There's got to be some solitude, and there's got to be a foundation that's solid, built on the Word of God. And it's built on a brokenness where you repent of all your sin. And then it's built on that rejoicing of saying, you know what? We don't have to stay down forever. It's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. We're going to rebuild this wall. We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild our faith all based on the word of God. When we do that, God gives us a special strength. And in that strength, there's great joy. There's joy like none other that you could ever experience. And that's really what our text is talking about this morning. As we look at this passage this morning, Jesus is telling us, I want, to, I want you to delight yourself in me. I want the joy of the Lord to be your strength. I want you to now look at verse 11 again. He says, I've been telling you all these things. Why? I've spoken all these things to you so that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be made full. Well, this morning... I want to simply ask four questions about the joy of abiding in Christ, and I'm going to answer those questions for you from this very text. Remember, the theme of verses 1 through 11 is really found in verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me 
and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from our for apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me ask you four questions about why it is that Jesus taught this and how it is that we can fully understand it. If you're taking notes, it's there for you in your outline. Question number one, how much does the Father love the Son? Now look at the beginning of verse nine because Jesus says here something pretty profound. He says, as the Father has loved me. Now, as a reminder, we're in the middle of that upper room discourse. Jesus is about to go to the cross in about 12 to 18 hours. He's been teaching about the vine, and now he's asking the question, or I'm asking the question based on what he taught, how much does the Father love the Son? Because he says, as the Father has loved me, and he's about to unpack something beautiful. So let's just answer that first question. How much does the Father love the Son? Your first blank, if you're taking notes, is we could say that it's a love that was before time. This is how much the Father loves the Son. It's a love that was before time. In fact, in John 17, in Christ's high priestly prayer, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, the Father has loved the Son from eternity past. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons but one God, have this love for one another from eternity past. This is a love like none other. This is a love that is longer than a lifetime. It is longer than a hundred years. It is longer than a million years. This love between the Father and the Son existed from eternity past to today to eternity future. It's a love that lasts forever. That's how much the Father loves the Son. How else does the Father love the Son? Your next bullet point there says it's a love that gives Him all things. John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That's how much the Father loves Him. There is nothing that the Father has withheld from the Son. The Father loves the Son so much that He has literally given all things into His hand. He has given the Son all authority. He has given the Son all judgment. He has given the Son all power to call whom He will into saving faith. Love gives, and the Father has given all things to His Son. How much does the Father love the Son? The next bullet point says it's a love that has revealed to Him all things. Not only did the Father give him all things, he has revealed to him all things according to John 5 verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Again, the Father loves the Son so much that he reveals all things to him. The Father shows the Son all that he himself is doing. He doesn't hide one thing. The Father does not conceal one thing. He doesn't shroud one thing. He does not keep any secrets from his Son because he loves his Son. The fourth thing that we see about the aspect of this love is that it is a love that was your next blank boldly proclaimed. It was a love that was proclaimed, is the word, at his baptism. Certainly you remember Matthew 3.17, as Jesus is being baptized in the river Jordan, we read this, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is an audible voice 
from heaven speaking into that occurrence, and the voice said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son. This is my beloved son. This is my son with whom I am pleased. This is the son whom I cherish. This is the son whom I want to honor. This is my son who is worthy of all glory and all power and all majesty and all praise. I mean, if it's confusing to you, God just said it audibly. I love my son. This is my beloved son. Not only that, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, the next bullet point says, a love that overshadowed him at the Transfiguration. As you remember, Peter, James, and John were on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured right before their very eyes, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, again, a bright cloud overshadowed them, Matthew 17, verse 5, and a voice from the cloud said this, is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Again, we're just talking about how much the father loves his son. He loves him from eternity past. He gives him all things. He he shows him all things. He proclaims this love publicly. Another aspect of this love the father has for the son is seen in your next bullet point. F there says, a love that was pointing to the cross. In John 10, 17, Jesus said this, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You see, not only does Jesus, is, is, is he loved by God at his baptism, and not only does God love Jesus at the transfiguration, God loves Jesus at the cross. Yes, he turned his back on him. Yes, he allowed in that moment for Jesus to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. We understand that. But we also understand that the father loves the son because the son is obedient even to the point of the cross, that he lays down his life and he takes it up again. Jesus is talking about the cross. Jesus would be obedient to death on a cross, and the father loved him for this. The father sent him to do just this. The father so loves the world that he gave his son. And all of this really points to the seventh answer to this question, how much does the father love the son? Here's the theological answer. It's a love that is a intra-Trinitarian love. It's an intra-Trinitarian, meaning within the Trinity. It's as if in this very moment, Christ is just wanting to remind us about the beauty of the love between God the Father and God the Son. Listen to me, this is not some kind of puppy love. This is not the kind of love that a woman has for her cat. All right, this is not some kind of tender teenage love. I love you, never change. All right, that's not what we're talking about here. All right, this is an intra-Trinitarian love. This is a perfect love. This is an eternal love. This is a love that was before time. This is a love for one that is of the same essence and the same substance. This is a love that never stops loving. This is a love that is never selfish. This is a love that points all creation to God. This is a love beyond imagination. This is a love that has no equal. There is no love like this. 
You understand me this morning? You can't understand me because intra-Trinitarian love is incomprehensible. This is a love like no other love. It blows our mind. This love is pure. This love is extravagant. This love is holy. This love is complete. This love needs no alteration. This love never fails. This is a triune love between the Father and the Son. That's what leads us to our second question, because really what Jesus says, you wouldn't believe it except for the fact that he said it. Here's what we're talking about. Question number two, how much does the Son love you? How much does the Son love you? Look at the second part of verse 9. Jesus, again, says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, you know what we're tempted to think? There's no way. I mean, how in the world can Jesus love me with that kind of love? Must be a lesser love. Must be an inferior love. It must be love to a a smaller degree. There's no way that I can somehow partake in the communion of intra-Trinitarian love. And yet, I'm just reading the text to you this morning. He just says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He loves you, your next blank, in the same way that God loved him. Again, some of you theologians are struggling out there. You're like, well, Adam, I don't agree. I'm just reading the text, right? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. How in the world can this happen? How in the world could this be? Well, maybe a couple of ways to think about that. John 17, verse 6 and 7, talk about how Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they are kept, and they have kept your word. Part of what he's saying here is like basically everything the Father's given to me. I'm now given to them. That's John 17, 7. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. He goes on in verse 8, for I have given to them the words that you gave to me, and they have come to know the truth that I came from you. Part of what we learn here is that basically, just like God the Father has revealed everything to the Son, the Son in return has revealed himself to us, and he's given us the opportunity to walk in truth and to walk in love. I think the Bible says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1, right? So the idea here is he's saying everything that the Father's given to me, I'm now giving it to you. How much does the Father love the Son? With everything. How much does the Son love you? With everything. Maybe that next bullet point there, B, says that he loved you. How much does the Son love you? He loved you enough to die for you. Let's say theologically, I'm slightly off because I'm saying he loved you like the Father loved him, and I'm sure nuances of theology could probably refine how I've communicated that to you, but let's just move on to point two that says he loved you enough to die for you. Is that enough for you? It's enough for me. He loved me enough to die for me. Ephesians 5, 2, as, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragment, excuse me, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know what we focus on a lot of times? John 3, 16. And we should. For God so loved the world that he gave. But do you know what this verse says in Ephesians 5, 2? It says, as Christ 
loved us. He gave himself up for us. It's the same thing, except saying it from Christ's perspective, that Christ loved us. Paul is reminding us that not only did God love us, but Jesus loves you. And he loved you so much that he gave himself up for you. And love is a sacrifice. And Jesus gave that which was most precious. He gave his very life so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved, so that we could be transformed. And we're to walk in that same kind of love. How much does the Son love you? See in your outline, He loves you enough to challenge you. He loves you enough to challenge you. We read a few months back in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You see, Jesus loves you with a love that changes you. Jesus loves you with a love that conforms you. It's not just like, you know, sometimes we say, God loves you, and that's true. He does love you, but I think we should also say, God loves you, and that love he has for you changes you, and when it changes you, it causes you to start loving others like you've been loved by him. That's what love does. It changes you so that you can love one another in the same way that he has loved us. We began to prioritize others. We began to serve others. We began to sacrifice for others. We began to show more patience to one another. We began to encourage one another with that same love that's been demonstrated to us by God. And now we see also through Christ. It's John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. To whom much has been given, much is required. Jesus has given you much love, and so he expects you to love one another much, even if you don't like each other. You still got to love each other. Even if you don't care to be around one another, you just remind yourself, man, God loves me. He always welcomes me into his presence. I always have access to him. I'm going to love people in that same way. How much does the son love you? D, he loves you enough to make you a conqueror. He loves you enough to make you a conqueror. We love Romans 8, 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I think we need a little bit more of that verbiage in our church. Sometimes we've allowed certain types of denominations to talk about, I'm a conqueror, I'm a conqueror. And then as churches, we're more like, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I just, I'm just a Christian. It's like, no, you are more than a conqueror. You have ability through Christ to conquer any sin, to conquer any foe. You have the ability in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to make sure that that love rests in you and that love of Christ is what makes you who you are. And the Bible says that if you're in Christ's love, you are more than a conqueror, which means that he will help you get through any trial, any distress, any persecution, any peril, any difficulty, and any danger. This does not necessarily mean that he will remove those hardships what it means is that his love will be with you in the hardship. 
And because his love is with you, and because his love is strengthening you, and because his love cannot be separated from you, you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loves you. How much does the Son love you? He loves you to the very end. He loves you to the very end, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This means that he loved you to perfection, that he loves you to completion, that he loves you all the way through. His love will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never deny you access into his presence. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Do you believe that this morning? He loves you to the end, which means he's not done with you yet. Yes, we're progressing in our sanctification. But he loves you in the midst of it, which means when you fall, he pulls you back up because he loves you and he's committed to you and he will not drop you. We have a perfect love that we see that the Father has for the Son. We have a perfect love that we see that the Son has for you. Third question we're asking this morning, well, how do I abide in Christ's love? Look at the end of verse 9. It says, abide in my love. Now, that's something you got to do. The way I see it, that is an imperative where he's now putting the onus, to some degree, on you. And to deny that fact is wrong. He's saying, I love you just like the Father loves me, but I want you to abide in my love. What does that mean to abide in his love? A, by remaining true to Christ. We've been discussing this for a couple of weeks already, but to abide means to remain. You stay right there under the waterfall of his grace. It's like when you're taking a hot shower on a cold day. Where do you stand in the shower? Up against the wall? Or do you stand right under the hot water that's falling? You're like, I'm right here. And that's what he's saying. You've got to remain right under the waterfall of the grace of God. Where is it that you want to sit when you go to the movies? Back in the back corner? No, you want to sit right in the middle so you can receive all that information that you paid 16 bucks for. Right? <laughs> Where do you drive when you're on the freeway? You get in a good lane and you're like, you know, I'll be driving down the freeway. Sometimes my wife might mention, hey, do you want to get in this lane or that lane? I'm like, no, I want this lane. This is the best lane. I'm staying right here because this is going to get us there the fastest way. Right? Sometimes she's right and I should listen. I know. But the idea is we got to remain true to Christ. We remain in Christ. It's his grace that saves us. But it's our responsibility, at least in part, synergistically, to remain in close relationship with him. That's why Christ gives us the imperatives of even John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. He says it again in John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I love you, but you got to remain in me. 
You have to stay intact, lest you become like a branch that bears no fruit, which is only intact externally, but it doesn't have the nutrients coming from the vine. And that branch that bears no fruit is not abiding. And that branch that's not abiding is not bearing. And that fruit that's not bearing gets cut off and thrown into the fire, which is why we got to meditate on Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's me abiding in him, him abiding in me. It's me living in him. It's his life living in me. There's this relationship to abide in his love means that we have union with him. It means that we're continuing in him. It means that we're depending upon him. It means that we're unashamed of him. We're abiding in him. Don't you want to stay in that love? I do. In one sense, positionally, you're in. I mean, when he saves you, nobody can snatch you out of his hand. So we need to emphasize that. Amen. Nobody can ever snatch you out. I'm in. But now that I'm in, I'm staying in. And I'm going to stay right in the middle. And I'm going to stay right under the hottest part of that waterfall because there's something beautiful about that continual relationship. So how do we abide in him? Well, first, you've got to remain true to Christ. Second, or B, by keeping Christ's commandments. By keeping Christ's commandments. Look now with me, if you will, at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Part of abiding means that not only are you remaining in Him in your faith and your focus, but that you're keeping His commandments. That's exactly what this verse is saying. If you want to abide, you've got to keep. And do you want to abide in that love? Then you've got to keep walking with Christ. In fact, Jesus has been saying this for a couple of chapters. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I read that to say it's impossible to say, I love Jesus and continue in your sin. Unrepentantly. On purpose. It's one thing if we fall into sin then we repent and we turn from our sin and we get right with God and we get right with others and that's showing that we're really abiding. But if somebody throws in the towel and they're like, I can't help continuing to, to, to sin this way and they're living and embracing that sin every moment of every day, then it's like, how can we say in that moment that I love Jesus? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Some people get confused here about the differences between what I'm talking about, salvation, sanctification, positionally abiding, practically abiding. Positionally, I'm loved by God no matter what, and yet it certainly seems like in some of these texts, he's like, if you keep my commandments, I will love you and make my home with you. Listen to me, you're saved by faith in Christ alone. But that faith does not stay alone. As you grow in your Christian faith, you walk in obedience to God's Word. The walking in obedience does not save you. 
but it is evidence that you have been saved by God's grace. The person who is not walking with God does not know God, just like the person who doesn't bear fruit will be cut from the vine and thrown into the fire. Let me try to clarify it this way. You see here a little addendum in your notes where I entitled it, Two Lies About Keeping Christ's Commandments. I want to take just a moment here because we're looking at verse 9 and 10 about abiding but we're also learning that abiding in that love, which God freely gives, ought to also incorporate keeping Christ's commandments. There's two lies that often happen when we think about exactly where we're talking about here in this passage at the moment. I want to give them to you. Lie number one would be to the unbeliever. When we think about keeping Christ's commandments, there's a lie that Satan offers to every unbeliever, and that lie is this. You have to keep Christ's commandments in order to be saved. That's a lie. You don't have to keep Christ's commandments to be saved, but unbelievers are tempted to believe that lie. So they construct religion, and they construct different obediences to that religion to which they say, if you do all of these things, some of which incorporate Christ's commands some of which do not. But they say, oh, if you keep all of this stuff, if you do all of these things, well, that'll show you're saved. If you go get baptized, you go do the Eucharist, you come to communion, if you go to church, if you go to a Christian home school, if your family reads the Bible, if you're a good person, if you love thy neighbor, you fill in the blank. Unbelievers are tempted to think, well, if I'm obeying Christ's commandments, many of these would struggle in our own Protestant church. Many of these we see in a Roman Catholic situation or in some other teaching that begins to place a great emphasis on the things that you do more so than on the grace of God. And it is a lie, and unbelievers are tempted to think, oh, 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 if I keep his commandments, if I'm a good person, then surely I'll be saved. This lie says that in order to become a Christian, I have to bear fruit. In order to become a Christian, I have to do all the things that a Christian does. This lie says that in order to become a Christian, I have to be a good person and love my neighbor. And I'm just here to tell you today, that's a lie. That's not how you become a Christian. You become a Christian by seeing God as a holy God. And when you see God as a holy God, you instantly see yourself as a sinner. Where you realize, like, woe is me. My best works, my best effort to try to reach God. God says, I don't want it. I don't want anything you got. I don't want anything you got to offer. All I want is broken repentance and faith in me. Listen to me, if you want to become a Christian this morning, it's not about what you do. It's about who you believe in. And it's about what he's done for you. And it's about how he's given his life for you. And it includes repenting, which is turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Repenting is saying, God, I'm sorry for the ways I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me and help me to live for you. Now listen, in that moment of repentance, you're still saved only by grace. 
Repentance is a gift from God. You cannot repent on your own unless God the Holy Spirit is regenerating your heart in that very moment to help you see your need for Him, and He changes your desire to where you say, I want God. I can't do it anymore on my own. I'm not going to try to keep jumping through a bunch of hoops to somehow please God so He'll accept me into heaven. Listen, keeping Christ's commandments never saved anyone. It's about faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. Now, the second lie is for Christians. Okay? That first lie is for unbelievers, that they want to believe that somehow if I keep all of Christ's commandments, I'll be saved. That's a lie. The second lie is to the believer, and it says this, you don't have to keep Christ's commandments in order to be sanctified. You don't have to keep Christ's commandments in order to be sanctified. These kind of people are going to say, it's all grace, all the time, isn't God good? And we're going to say, yes, he is. He is good, and I love him so. And I love him so much, I want to follow him. And I want to abandon everything in my life that would dishonor him. And I'm so thankful that he saved my soul, and he changed my heart. And so now I better get busy doing exactly what it is that God's called me to, how he's called me to live. I mean, this person would say, well, then now that I'm saved, I can just kind of add Jesus to my life, but pretty much just kind of live for me. I'll just add Jesus in. Bless you, Jesus. Love Jesus. You talk to people in our culture all the time. They may say, I love God. I love Christ. That's less common. But it does happen, right? In church settings, people be like, oh, I love Jesus. And yet you look at their life Monday through Saturday, and they're living for themselves. I'm not saying as Christians we don't struggle with that. Of course we struggle. Every day it's a fight, and every day it's a battle. What I'm talking about is the person who's just given up the fight. They said, I've said the prayer. I've told Jesus I love him. I've been to church with grandma plenty of times. I'm a Christian, so now I can just live however I want. Listen to me, that's a lie. You cannot live however you want. If you belong to him, you will live for him because you will want to live for him because he will change your desires and he will change your direction and he will change your affection and he will change you in such a way that you want to abide in him. You want to remain in him. And the way that you remain in him is that you obey him and you keep his commandments. And as you do that, you're not just doing it out of duty. You're doing it out of delight. You're doing it because you have no greater joy in life other than to obey God. Nothing else matters. Nothing else brings joy. Not alcohol, not money, not sex, not position, not accolades or awards. Nothing else matters. We don't live for that stuff. We live for God because we love him. So to summarize these two points, you don't have to keep Christ's commands in order to be saved because salvation is by grace and you do have to keep Christ's commands in order to grow in sanctification. Otherwise, you're not abiding in the love of Christ. Justification is immediate. 
Sanctification is a progressive growth day by day walking with Christ. Listen to me, church. Don't fall in either one of those lies. Be clear in your thinking. Look to God's word. Be informed by the scripture. We're saved by grace alone. And now we're called to walk in obedience, abiding in the vine every single day. And aren't you thankful, this last point, and we'll close. Aren't you thankful that we can get some help by looking, your last blank for this morning, by looking at Christ's example? I mean, notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 10. He's like, hey, that's what I've been doing. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Listen to me. Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you to do something I'm not doing. I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not willing to do. You know, I ran cross country in high school for four years. And sometimes our cross country coach, I felt like gave us a pretty hard workout. And I was so thankful, though, that our cross country coach actually ran the workouts with us. And he would get out there and say, we're going to do another mile. We're going to do another mile. I wanted to just look at him sometimes and say, shut up. Oh, I can't say that in front of my kids, right? But you know how it is. Like you're, you're, you're just like, oh, you're killing me. Sometimes we go to other schools, and I'd see some fat coach sitting on the sideline, run another mile. What do you think his, his runners were thinking? Yeah, you got to get out here with us, coach. You know, I happen to have a coach who ran with us, and he ran his heart out. And sometimes we would beat him, and sometimes he would beat us, but he gave his all every time. That inspired me. I was just like, man, coach. Are you sure you're going to run this with us today? He's like, come on, boys. And he just get out there and just run. You know what? Jesus is saying, I'm running the race. I'm obeying everything the Father's called me to. I'm not telling you to do something. I'm running all the way to death. I'm going to die for you. I love you so much. Jesus does not say here, do as I say. He says, do as I do. Can you imagine if Jesus was a Bible character like Abraham? who was so beautiful in so many ways, and yet still fell into sin? Can you imagine if Jesus was a Bible figure like Moses, who did so many beautiful things, and yet still fell into the pride of his own sin? Can you imagine if Jesus was like David, who was a man after God's own heart, and the king of Israel, and yet he still fell in his own sin? You know what that would do for us? Like, oh, oh, well, Jesus is telling us we got to be holy, and we got to abide in him, but he didn't do that. But we don't have a Jesus like that. Our Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. He was perfect. He was obedient. And so when he says, do as I do, listen to what he says in John 8, 55. He says, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and I keep his word. That's what Jesus does. That's what he's called us to do, John 14, 31. But I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Well, next week, we'll have to jump in to verse 11 to talk about what the whole point of this is, is that so my joy would be in you and that your joy would be made full. I can't wait to share that passage with you next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be reminded of so many of these truths. Lord, we want to abide in the vine, 
And we're just kind of blown away this morning as we've just thought about what does it mean for Jesus to say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. May we be changed by that love. May we be motivated by that love. May we be energized by that love. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ this morning. Help us not to fall into these two lies that somehow we're saved by legalism or somehow it doesn't matter what we do. God, we just want to love you and live for you every moment of every day. And so as we close this service and sing this song, I pray that we would be thinking about how much you love us, how much you've given for us. And that would really inspire us and and challenge us to love you and to love others in the same way. What a joy to abide in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.